Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This year marks the 50th birthday of your favourite Sunday World newspaper. To celebrate, we're looking back over some of the front page stories and the scandals with the big name journalists who made it the People's Paper. So join us to reel in the years over the coming weeks on Crime World and at a special 50th birthday party event to be held on September 27th at the Sugar Club in Dublin. We have 50 tickets to give away. For information on how to enter, go to our Crime World social media channels on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Sunday World is 50, a crime world special. <laughs> Start with the night that you named uh, the general. And I suppose we'll go back then afterwards to the build up to that. But yeah, that story you just told me off air there. about well, uh, We've been know, working on, this, on, on the whole story about Martin Cal and, and the general for several months. And uh, at that time, you know, he was living in a big house down in Cooper Downs in Ratmines, which was a real posh part of Dublin and still is. And uh the general was living there and his pigeons out the back and he had his wife there, Francis, and his girlfriend was living there, uh, or sister up the road, um, Tina, uh, was living, I think, up and around the Swan House. I can't remember, Swan something. Mm. Like, she was up the road. But, you know, everyone wondered how was this man who was on social welfare uh, was living in such a big pad in one of the poshest parts of, of, of Dublin. And uh, I suppose that's what kind of got our interest. And, uh, and the Sunday world in those days was an amazing place to work. And there was a real buzz about the place. And we had the most fantastic news editor in Sean Boyne. Uh, he was a brilliant man. And also Dave Mullins, uh, his deputy, uh, was an, an amazing character and a and, uh, very nice guy, but a brilliant uh, tabloid writer. And, uh, and also a, a great man to, to see a story. Uh, and in those days, there was a lot of resources there. And uh, the Sunday World would have no problem putting a couple of reporters on the Cahill story. So I would have worked in it. Cahill O'Shea uh, at the time uh, would have worked in it. And there was a couple of other people who who, who gave us a hand on, on this particular story. You know, everyone wanted to know how who this guy, the general, was. Why had he so much money when he never worked a day in his life? And, you know, so the cops had put a team on him to basically follow him 24 hours had to see how and where he was getting his money. And eventually he was done for... Uh, Social welfare fraud, mm. effectively, 
Um, so he ended up in court a couple of times, and one of the days he, he showed up dressed as Mickey Mouse and his Mickey Mouse boxer shorts and mask over his face, all of that down the courts. And, he and had he still not been named at that stage? No, no, and he was, he was a real, well, I can't remember at that stage whether yeah. he'd been named or not, but he was a real, Cahill was kind of a, a real character in many respects. Uh, people kind of seen him as, as a Robin Hood, as, as, you know, he kind of robbed the rich to, to look after the poor. And that's the kind of reputation he had among the general public, uh, yeah. rightly and wrongly. But m- most of the stuff he did was, was, was robberies and burglaries and all that kind of thing. He wasn't as such um, um, into drugs in, in any way. Mm. And uh, he, he wasn't known to be violent, although the movie did portray him as quite violent, I think, when he crucified a guy to... Uh, um, uh, a pool table. Um, now, I think such an incident uh, did obviously happen, but he wasn't kind of known as somebody who was going out beating or threatening or shooting people. So there was there was a degree of kind of empathy for him because he came from a poor, uh, you know, poor area, born in the north side, came from a big family, and and then ended up living in, on on the south side of town. Um, but. He, uh, I, I would have had um, a lot of interaction with him. <laughs> and many a day I went down to his house and had conversations with him through the letterbox in the house. Did he chat away? Like, oh, he'd be like, what do I want? Martin, are you the general, you know, fuck off. You were ultimately <laughs> looking stuff. to find an opportunity. Yeah, we were, we, were, we were basically trying to find him because everyone wanted to know who was him. So, like, basically... Explain the, that for people listening because, like, it's not that easy. You can't just go and name somebody. Either usually have... Well, normally if you went... Yeah, well, you. normally if you went you kind of named somebody as, as a major criminal unless you had the evidence and, and, and they had a, a strong criminal record uh, you know the show that had a series of different convictions and they had committed various crimes like no one in the right mind would probably do it because that individual would probably sue you for defamation yeah. and you'd be liable to pay out substantial sums to them uh, via the courts so everyone and ultimately we would be trying to say as the media you would be trying to prove what up until that point the Gardaí hadn't been able to with yeah. all the results. Yeah, well, well yeah, have. well, I, I think that what the Gardaí were trying to do, they were trying to convict them. You know, that's exactly. what they were trying to do. Exactly. But they never kind of really got around to that, really, yeah. to be honest. They never really did convict them. Yeah. But uh, Martin was a, was a very, very clever fella, you know. Um, but we were trying to, we just wanted to, everyone's wanting this guy, the general, all the papers were, were writing about him. Who was he? So, you know, the biggest story in town as such was to, if you could do it, was to name the general. Mm. And that's what we went about doing. So we kind of built up a whole dossier and and got as much of information on him as we could. And, you know, but he had very little convictions. I think the only convictions he has was really as a child, you know. Mm. It was all suspicion, you know. But I think we decided, uh, and the powers that be, to, 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 in fairness, and to the credit of the then uh, Sunday World editor, who was a fantastic guy and, and a brilliant editor at the time, Colin McLennan, like he had the balls you know, to run it, you know, because Sean Boyne and, and, and Mullins and myself and a few others, we, pers- we persuaded him that there was serious merit in the story, that it was in the public interest. And how could a guy like Martin Cahill live in this, you know, big posh house, you know, worth huge amounts of money when he was effectively on the doll? So he was obviously getting the money from somewhere. So the Sunday World, and, and um, Colin McLennan, the editor, and obviously the Dan CEO and founder, Jeremy McGuinness would have been involved in that decision, um, you know, took the view, we'll publish and be damned. And that's what they did. 
and, and we named him as 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 you know Martin Cahill as the general, and that was that was a massive massive story at the time. And, and that night, I remember when we when we did it, um, we all decided to go over to Brady's pub. There was two pubs in Terranure across the road from the Sunday World that we drank in. One was Martin Morris's on the corner of Terranure Cross, and the other one was Brady's across the road. And for some reason, I decided to move my car uh, out of. Sunday War car park to Brady's across the road. I don't know why, but I did. <laughs> but anyway, as we celebrated naming the general in the pub that evening and that night, um, there was a lot of drink taken and everyone was celebrating. Cahill sent a team up the road from Ratmines to the Sunday World office in Terranure and slashed the tires of every car in the car park <laughs> as a way of getting his revenge for Except what we had yours. done. Except for mine, <laughs> just across the road. <laughs> Oh, uh, but I tell you, it was uh, everyone followed from there on in, and he was then named. Everyone kind of followed from there on in, and and he was he was then named, you know. But yeah. like from what I can remember, he was never like like he was associated. He was accused of doing the big O'Connor, the big jewelry robbery yeah. in O'Connor's and in Harold's Cross. Um, him and his gang, he he was never done. He was never convicted for that. And uh, he did the the Rusbler House, the Beit Armed Robbery, uh, Art Robbery. Yeah. You know the paintings that was worth millions. He was involved in that. Again, he was he was never convicted, and like he, he was never really convicted as an adult for any of his crimes. No, that he, he did, know. I suppose, um, incredible crimes that would be the stuff of movies. Oh yeah, and then he was he involved, for... of course, in the in the, in the in the kidnapping. I wasn't really too much involved in this story, but in the kidnapping of of um, Norden Bank. Executive uh, Jim Lacey and his family, mm. and he was involved in that when that one kind of went patient. Sure. And in fact, I think he might have been charged and related to that at the time. He was eventually he was like, he was shot dead. He was quite young when he died; like he was mm. forty five. Martin Cahill when he was assassinated, and uh, the IRA killed him. There's absolutely I don't think you know some people have tried to suggest that um, uh, it wasn't really them, but I mean it was. My understanding is it was Cahill. Uh, sorry, it was the IRA. I, I've been told by several different sources within the IRA they definitely killed him. It was a lone gunman. Uh, they singled him out because of his association with the loyalist leader, uh, Billy Wright. The fact that there was two reasons. Uh, I was told one was his involvement in, the, in trying to sell the B8 art, art paintings to to Billy Wright, and and secondly, he also facilitated and provided overnight combination for a loyalist hit team that came to Dublin that tried to uh, shoot up a bar uh, down the Docklands there, um, and at that time shot dead um, an IRA member who was on the door of that particular pub that night. Mm. And Cahill was accused by Republicans, or suspected by Republicans, of providing um, accommodation for the Loyalist gang that night to get them in and out of Dublin. And that was the second reason why he was uh, uh, why he was uh, picked, uh, singled out and assassinated by uh, the Republican movement. Now, he probably didn't get into drugs because he was just a little bit before that all exploded. He was 94, I think, when he was murdered. But um... August 94, he was, uh, he was killed. Yeah, he was never really... I, I think Martin Cahill probably seen, and anyone who grew up in Dublin in the 80s, seen the damage that the whole heroin situation, the whole heroin epidemic in Dublin and what it did to to young people Mm. uh, around the city. You know, there was nothing worse than seeing junkies all over the place and they were going around annoying people and trying to rob people's houses and they were robbing their own in many cases. And that's why you had the whole you know, anti-drugs movement that, you know, kind of grew up across the city and there was a whole anti-Duns fight because Larry Dunn and the whole family, the Duns were behind much of the heroin at that mm, stage. Mm. And then, you know, so there was this whole anti-drugs movement and then the Republicans of the IRA, you know, ground level Republican members of the Republican movement, 
not necessarily IRA members, but members, you know, supporters of the IRA and Sinn Féin members uh, at that time in various working class areas uh, got involved uh, and, and helped people get organised to run the junkies out of their areas. And, and that's what they did. And then I think towards, you know, the tail end of the 80s was when kind of people looked away from heroin and then seen an opportunity in terms of cannabis. And that's when John Trainer, who would have had a lot of business dealings with Cal and, and John Gilligan came to the fore. Mm. And, and those who followed. But I suppose the Sunday world, that whole idea of naming the general was, you know, we'll, we'll see that as a kind of a, a changing period for them when going forward, it became all about crime. But before that, before the... the well, I would have story, said that like the, the height of the Sunday world uh, as a newspaper was was definitely in the 80s and all in, under uh, Colin McLennan's editorship. Uh, in those days, when I left... I left Sunday World to go and work in the Star, believe it or not. The Sunday World decided to set up the Star. Jerry McGuinness was involved in that. So I was asked by McLennan to move over to the Star, which I duly did. And I was in the Star for about 12 months or so before I was headhunted to go and work for the Star in London. But at that time, the Sunday World, you know, was selling 380,000 on a Sunday. Um, I think it was 282, 3,000 in the Republic and over 100,000 in the North, which was an incredible sale in a country down of three and a half million. We, we don't have the, mm. like the population since then has increased from three and a half to, you know, nearly 5.2, we're heading to 5.3 million. So it was an incredible um, sale. And also the paper then uh, was fantastic, I think, in many ways, because it was there was a great sense of fun and adventure about it. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it, always, it was always about, you know, the, the, the four S's, as I would say, you know, you know, it was all sex, showbiz, scandal and sport. Mm. And as a former tabloid editor, to me, that was the four S's. And that was always what I wanted in any tabloid newspaper. And, you know, when I went on to edit the mirror, you know, I made all my decisions based on the four S's and trying to have that mix in the product every day because that's what people wanted. Mm. And in the 80s, Colin McLennan and Sean Boyne and Bill Stewart and the whole team certainly gave the readers what they wanted. And there was a fantastic mix of the paper, you know. And, uh, like, I mean, it didn't matter what happened. Like, the sexy girl on page one, you know, rightly or wrongly, didn't come off page one. That's the way it was. You know, the, the amount of, there was a lot of showbiz stories. There was a lot of sex stories. There was a huge amount of stories from rural Ireland. You know, even the slightest sniff of a sex scandal in rural Ireland, you know, just made the paper. And it was you know? a different time, of course. Different, like, it was different. It was different. There was no internet time. there. There was, there was no internet, there was no such thing as social media, you know, mobile phones were very few and hard, far mm. between. You know, look at the papers that you had then. Like on the Sunday, you had the Sunday Independent, the, the Sunday Press, um, maybe a bit of the Tribune. I think when it was the Tribune came in, yeah, at that stage. Um, then you had, uh, you know, in tabloid terms, it was really the Sunday World, sorry, News of the World didn't really have an Irish edition at that stage. They had an Irish correspondent, but, you know, they might just do a handful of stories. Mm-hmm. And and the Sunday Mirror, you know, had, had Jim Dunn here. It was their correspondent. But they might only do two or three Irish, you know, uh, Sunday People was the same. They had a correspondent. But they didn't have a full-blown Irish edition. So the Sunday World really had the market to themselves. And the fact that it was colour was so unique at that time. And that's why from the moment it took off in the 70s, the Sunday World just took off from day one. But it had this, you know... They always say that you bet a tabloid newspaper, you know, there's got to be a rhythm to the book, as we call it. And and the rhythm was the four S's, and, and that's what you needed. And if you wanted to sell, and the paper was action-packed with those type of stories. It was either sex, 
showbiz, scandal, sport. And from, you know, page to page, that's what it was. And there was a lot of funny stories and human interest stories, mm. you know, there really were, you know. So what kind of things were happening in rural Ireland, you know, under, <laughs> under the cover, <laughs> under the covers? Is that what the under, ad was? Under the covers, you know. I remember, you know, Sean Boyne used to say to me, you know, like just we're down the country and, you know, see, can you get me a few yarns? You'd head off on a Tuesday and you'd come back in him on a Thursday night and you'd, you know, try to have a couple of, you know, mad stories from down the country. It could be farmers feuding over land or fighting mm. over land. It could be rows over wills, you know. Mm. I mean, there was a great story in, in Drogheda about a fella called Jerry Campbell who opened up a bar at the back of his house in the Finians Park housing estate. Now, the nearest pub to them was about two miles away at the time. So he just opened up this she bean called Jerry's Bar and it was all home brewed that he made himself and, you know, he did TV and he'd darts and he'd pool table and the place was packed seven nights a week and eventually some neighbours got annoyed and tipped off the cops. So this guy was prosecuted and brought to court and fined whatever he was, you know. But he was a very polite guy and the point was 50p at the time and, and I remember being covering the court case and then uh, I went up to his house and interviewed him we did all the pictures and it ended up being a splash in the Sunday world, you know, mm. about how this guy, you know, was looking after his neighbours because there was no bar near them so we set up his own pub and it was 50p a point and there was all the pictures there. and it was all those kind of real happy-go-lucky stories yeah, yeah. that people got a great kick out of and, and a laugh out of and of course Jerry Campbell was the talk of the country and a lot of the stories in Sunday World would be followed up by the you know pirate stations remember we didn't even have legitimate mm. local radio it was all pirate stations that we had um, around the country like we would have had Radio Drada or Boyneside Radio then and, but every area had its old pirate, pirate station so it was all these kind of stories. Then you would have like the animal cruelty stories as well. You know, people love like I mean, or you know, um, you know, you would have had uh, stories about you know mad dogs or you know dog with six legs or a cat with you know eight legs and three eyes. A rooster, and, uh, I recall, was one yeah, of the yeah, earliest yeah, ones yeah, I did about yeah. a rooster who uh, some old woman had somewhere in rural Ireland and it was annoying the neighbours so they took her to court and there was this big kind of drama over mm. this rooster. She was refusing to get rid of it. And, and then the other great one of course was the potholes because potholes was such oh, yeah, a huge, huge issue at that point. You know? and people were disappearing like, oh, down potholes. We're, we're swimming in potholes. Bring our swimming togs. So we used to go and do pothole specials around the place. You know, like you'd hit a town and do five pubs with pubs boy and then you could, you know, go and hit a town or whatever it was or a village or some place got these giant potholes and was like, yeah, yeah. you know, landing on the moon and you go and you do all this with a photographer and, you know, and there was some wonderful characters in the Sunday world. Like, I always remember with great memories uh, of uh, Andy Devereaux and uh, I suppose some of the listeners might remember what he was always known as swashbuckling Andy Devereaux in the paper. And uh, Andy was a bachelor boy from Sutton, but kind of was on the fringes of rock and roll and all his life and loved going to gigs and drinking what he called his nappers, his brandy every night and a few odd points. And But um, Andy used to drive a Granada, but he lived with his mother, Lada Merston, out in, uh, out in Sutton. But Andy, Andy was a sub in the paper and in the Sunday world they had what was called a chairman's column and this was kind of place where Jeremy Guinness the the, the, the then owner or the CEO he, he, subs, he sold it to the, to independent newspapers but Jeremy Guinness would have there'd be plugs of various ad agencies or businessmen and the chairman's column well that particular column was, was, was very important to the commercial department and to Jeremy Guinness and Andy's job you know, huge responsibility was to sub edit that and Andy would sub edit bits and bobs but every year he loved Tina Turner Right, and uh, he loved he'd organise a gig abroad in America every year to go and see 
Tina Turner. And he would organise the flights with Aer Lingus and get a freebie. So he'd organise free flights and the Sunday World in Turner would give publicity to Aer Lingus. Yeah. And Andy flew with Aer Lingus and Andy would fly. That happened now in RTE, they'd be in trouble. <laughs> they'd be in big trouble. <laughs> I'm sure it did happen in Perfectly RTE. Perfectly okay. I'm sure, I'm sure it did happen. I'm sure many of them got cars from various commercial enterprises. <gasps> but the difference is the Sunday World was not getting taxpayers' money. Exactly. That's the difference. Exactly. Yeah, but um, the Sunday World, so Andy would have gone over to do Tina Turner. So we go to America for two weeks and line up a load of stories and, and he'd go and see Tina's concert and he'd do a review one Sunday and then he'd get an interview with her and it was all from Squash Pucked in Andy. Well, he was obsessed about the late great Tina Turner. Well, Andy used to go to various gigs in town and, uh, you know, he dined out on the Squash Pucked in name. Well, he was an incredible character and he used to drive a couple of the old Ford Granada cars and he'd come flying into the into the Sunday World car park every morning. You think he was out in Senna and he'd be hung over. <laughs> About 50 hangovers hanging out of him. And then he'd have a cigarette pack. He must have smoked about 40 or 50 cigarettes a day. Well, Andy was a wonderful character, but he also had a dog, which he loved, um, a little terrier called uh, Roscoe. And Andy was a very tall, tall guy. Bachelor, never married, had various girlfriends, always 20 years, 25, 30 years younger than him over the years. But uh, anyway, when Andy's mother died, her funeral was uh, out in Sutton, Lord of Marystown. Andy arrived at the funeral uh, just like any rock star would in his black limousine and his black suit and his black sunglasses with Roscoe the dog. And of course, the dog was also wearing sunglasses. <laughs> so poor mother was up at the top of the, laid out up at the top of the church anyway. And Andy, as you, as the surviving son, and walked up to the, went to the church uh, with the dog. And uh, the poor priest at the time came out in a very st- state of uh, agitation. And politely asked, told Andy he couldn't have the dog in the church. Again, these were different times. It's not like now when dogs are treated like babies, you know. <laughs> we told Andy he'd have to take his dog out in the church. So Andy just turned around and told him, hey, Padre, no Roscoe, no gig. <laughs> <laughs> the mother wasn't going to be buried. The mother wasn't going to be buried. There'd be no funeral. And Andy didn't about turn and walk back down the, the aisle of the church with the dog anyway. So after various negotiations, the, the priest backed down and Roscoe was allowed Roscoe to, go to We're going to Andy's mother's funeral. Hilariously, I met somebody recently who uh, worked in EMI, which is where all the tickets, presumably for these gigs, were going to be uh, available. And if any freebies were on the go, you would have had to go in. And this guy said to me, Darren Smith, actually, many people know him, but he was saying that he remembers Andy Devereaux coming into the EMI offices with this dog. Now, he didn't remember his name, but he remembered the dog. And he said he used to fart on command, the dog. <laughs> I'd say the two of them were probably <laughs> farting in unison. <laughs> with feeding innocent brandy. Oh, but yeah. anyway, he yeah, said he was, uh, he totally was, pungent. And this dog was like, obviously, his constant companion. Yeah. But, but Andy Andy was, uh, was, a great, was a great guy and, uh, and uh, was a great character in the Sunday world in those days. I mean, the newsroom in those days was a bit of a madhouse now, to be honest, you know. Like Tuesday, like a lot of people worked a four-day week. So Tuesday to Friday, a lot of the reporters worked. And there'd be only one reporter on. I mean, think of it, for the, for the biggest paper in Ireland, there might be just one reporter on the Saturday because most of the paper was made up by Friday night mm. because of the, the size of the books. The, the paper was printed in, in two segments. Like, you know, you used to have 150, 160-page papers. You know, sometimes the paper was 180 pages. It was that much advertising. Yeah. So... You know, the fourth segment will be done by tours and by tours they tours the morning, Wednesday night tours the morning, and then you know the rest will be done nearly but ready to go. So they'd, be, they'd start printing, you know, as soon as the football, you know, they do they start printing at around three o'clock on the Saturday afternoon because they go with the UK edition, which used to sell about twenty, thirty thousand. 
And that'll be printed for us and flown over to London. And then, you know, when they start getting the football results, then they start printing the main edition from around, you know, seven, half past seven. So unless, you know, something major happened, they rarely changed what it was because they always went with their own. Spot. And they sometimes had a fake front on the on the London edition in case anybody... <coughs> yeah, well, they would. If they had, yeah, well, if they had a really, really good story, they would do a fake yeah. front for the London edition in case somebody... In case anyone picked it up, up and yeah, stole yeah, it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, 100%, you know. But that was probably more in the uh, in the column... Uh, column um, McGinty days. McGinty's days as yeah. editor in, in, in the 90s. I mean, he took over from McLennan. Um, you know, that they were probably more prone to do that then. And the paper could have changed. It became more crime uh, yeah. dependent and, you know, kind of some more full of crime stories. The stories would have been more liftable, in other words. If yeah, you had more, a story would have been, that would have been was, far more liftable. You, you, know. you wouldn't be lifting a story no. if you had the exclusive photographs, Absolutely. exclusive interview yeah. and all the but rest. But there was a hell of a lot of, you know, there's far more crime stuff and then... Yeah. Paul Williams was doing great stuff, uh, to be fair to him, in the paper at the time. And, you know, there was a huge reliance on him and Mick McNiff was there and it was very, so those really brilliant reporters, um, you know, and it was, you know, was there was a huge reliance on them. But getting back to the 80s, like you also had a lot of like the women's read. There was a huge uh, reading in the Southern World then for women. Like Micheline McCormick was absolutely brilliant. And uh, like, you know, she kind of pioneered. Uh, modern day women's coverage in newspapers as we know it, like the agony and mm. all these, you know, various stories about, you know, how your body works, dealing with issues like contraception, sex, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Like it was a different country in the eighties, you know, and I mean, you know, we didn't, you know, it was still people were still, there was still contraception was banned, you know, people still couldn't get divorced. It was a completely different country. Like the Catholic Church still had a huge amount of power. Because the sex dance scandals hadn't really started to break. It wasn't until the nineties that the sex scandals in the church, you know, really came to the forefront and, and broke. But you must have been when you were there in the eighties. I was going to say to you, rural Ireland was full of these bright, sparkling, funny stories of these big characters and all the rest of it. But there must have been a darker side to it then, and you must of have course. been hearing rumours of that. Of course, there was, and, and there was often rumours whereby. You know, there was priests who, who, you know, had left the church and run off with a housekeeper. And we would have done a couple of them stories. You know. What about? Because well, in terms of the sex abuse, the, kind of, the, the sex abuse, the sex abuse didn't really start coming out as such. It didn't start breaking until about the 90s, no, did it? No, there was a lot of, you would have had various incest cases in courts in Ireland mm. um, in the 80s, you know, and there was some horrible cases of abuse that we did cover in the Sunday world. But the ones involved the clergy in the 80s was very few and far between. It was only in the 90s that these stories started to come out. So I remember... Um, probably working with you in the mirror at the time when those stories, those yeah. court cases started about yeah, yeah. a priest, you know, was, yeah. you know, found guilty or, you know, pleaded guilty or something like that. And it was the undoubted splash. Nothing rivaled it when those no. stories started it. And I remember seeing them start to make their way inside the paper and then start to become single columns. Yeah, well, that's as because... As we got used to it. Yeah, well, it's a bit like now, like if you look at the country now... Um, when I was um, a cub reporter in, in the early 80s, and I started off in 1981 in the Draw and the like if there was three murders a year in Ireland, that was it. Mm. And a murder then, like in 1981, was such a huge story. It would run for two weeks. It'd be on the front of the, in the, the front of the yeah. even Herald, even press, like nonstop for two weeks. It was yeah. just huge. And he wouldn't leave an, an area if he went down to cover a story until it was all covered to an end and somebody was arrested. But now we've gone from having three murders a day in Ireland to nearly a murder every day. Yeah, yeah. And like a fast, large amount of them. I mean, I'd say the fast majority of the murders in this country are domestic. Mm. You know, most of them. 
Like, there's there's very few actual you know random mortars as such that you know. No, they're very rare. They're very rare, and the ones outside of that, you know, a lot of them are crime related, where are gang related. So if you take out domestic and gang related, the number of people then being killed are you know are few, very few. The random attack or random killings as such are, are few and, and few and far between. But it's actually frightening the amount of domestic violence there is and the amount of domestic mortars, and particularly uh, the amount of women who are being killed mm. uh, is absolutely frightening and, and horrific. So there's obviously a huge problem there in society that, you know, going forward that, that we have to deal with. Uh, but getting back to the 90s, like, uh, it just became uh, sexual sexual abuse committed by priests just became so common that it went from being front page news for days on end um, to tops, as we'd call them, short piece of uh, maybe eight or ten paragraphs inside the paper. Mm. And that just shows you because there was only so much sex abuse you can cover because yeah. eventually the readers just got sick of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and, and torn away. So in any newspaper, you, you just got to limit the green. And it's like mortars. You, you get to cherry pick mortars um, as, as an editor, as a journalist. But what mortars we put in page one? Well, one that's going to be of interest, you know, is the answer. But like... Every mortar really should be the same, but it was a bit like the sex abuse with the mortars. We, again, we got to cherry pick them, yeah, which is yeah. a shocking really place to be, but it that's is, what happens. But I suppose that, you know, in the end in of the day... In a new cycle. You know, unless you're the unless you're the state funded media, you are actually it is a commercial entity that you're working for. Well, it's a total commercial entity, and you're either going to live and die by your sales, um, and there's nobody else there to pick up the bills. You know, so yeah. what you spend, you ought to run a business and you make a profit, and if you don't make a profit, you die, and you shut down, and and all your workers are laid off, and that's the way it is. You don't have this, you know, uh, public service. You don't have the government of the state coming in to bail you out every time you need a couple of quid mm. you know and and that's the difference between RTE and everybody else involved in the in the media in this country mm. come back to the sort of the 80s in those days you were in the Sunday world and sex was obviously a big part of it but like I once got people... I got once I once got attacked and condemned by a bishop for for writing a sex story <laughs> <laughs> from the and it was yeah pulpit. condemned from the pulpit. Oh really? Yeah, in my hometown in Drada. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. How exciting. Was, I wrote a, I wrote I wrote a story about uh, sheet parties, and this was a story. Probably some people might find this terribly rude, but it was about uh, sex parties basically happening involving men and women in the house in Drada with a sheet put across the road and, and holes in the sheet and the women couldn't see I, the, sorry, the other sorry, side. Sorry. I thought you were saying <clears throat> sheet. No, no, sheet. Sheet part. I thought that was your accent, you see. No, I thought, no, and I was no, going, no, this is going to, I'm going to have to get this edited. This is too much. <laughs> no, but, sheet no. parties. Okay, that's okay. Sheet, so a sheet, sheet was put across the room with holes in them at the waist. So people would swap over and go the other side. Right. And they would pick the various partners from the size of their, you know what, okay. it was put through the hole in the sheet. So these parties were going on at a certain Only in Drogheda. At a housing estate in Drogheda. <laughs> so <clears throat> for legal reasons, we couldn't name the housing estate. So we just put in, so rather than, you know, we said the Boyne Valley, you know, the Boyne, as another term of her from Drogheda, Boyne yeah. Valley area, whatever it was. Now, there was in a housing estate called Boyne Valley in Drogheda at the time. <laughs> <laughs> there was the Boyne Valley Hotel and uh, there was a housing estate beside it called, sorry, there wasn't a housing estate called the Boyne Valley. There was an estate beside it just called Stamine. So everybody kind of assumed it was in there. But anyway, this story was massive. 
and it was the talk of everybody in Drogheda. And in fact, it was the talk of the whole country, these sheep parties. Yeah. So, of course, the Sunday War loved it. We've got a great sales out of them. Sean Boyne was as happy as Larry, the news editor. And uh, But the, my local bishop, Lord Emerson, Bishop Lennon, took a very dim view. And my father, Lord Emerson, was equally a very religious man. But anyway, I was condemned in the pulpit at Mass on the Sunday. Named and shamed. Like. Named and shamed by the late Bishop Lennon for bringing the whole of Drogheda into disrepute. For <laughs> writing about these shocking parties. <laughs> How'd your father take that? Not very well. <laughs> well, he didn't take it very well, me writing a story. He signed it with the bishop, actually. Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> the bishop was a good buddy of his. And uh, but that kind was, of thing would have been it was shocking, and that you know stuff like that shouldn't be put out there, and we shouldn't, and we shouldn't have been writing about. But that it, kind you know of thing mean? was like not, you know, it was secretive, and okay, we haven't heard about those, but like it was such a a closed society, wasn't it? it there was, was no yeah. divorce. Well, I just happened to know um, one guy who actually went to these things. Right. That's how I found out about this story. <laughs> is a friend of yours? That was <laughs> no, just somebody I knew. Who went just to asking it. for a friend. No, no, no. Just no, know no, about this friend. Like, obviously can't receive my story. It was actually not that Sunday. It was the week later the bishop uh, had a go at me. And then I met him in the town about two or three weeks after that. And him, he was walking around with his bicycle and uh, he had another go at me. And him and I had it out because uh, I wasn't too happy with him and I wasn't too happy with his church and the way they'd been hating over certain things. And it's splashing itself in those days. In you? those days, yeah. Had, but had I, a I shindig uh... with the bishop on the street. <laughs> um, but like, so, you know, it's hard to imagine now and, you know, things have moved on, society has moved on, the media has moved on, the media is a completely different animal now. But back then, it would have been legitimate to write about people having affairs, about people's homosexuality for example because that was people you know newspapers were writing about that and outing people mm. mainly tabloid media up until probably the 1990s I mean that's hard to believe isn't it mm-hmm. but that was the kind of stuff and that was sort of titillating you know, uh, re- really to a, yeah, well, probably I, a rural Ireland that didn't Yeah well I think the outing of uh, gay or people who were homosexual whatever that was more of a British thing Yeah That was a, that was a more um, Or a showbiz thing Yeah but it was it was more something that the British tabloids did Mm. When you think about that, now, um, and particularly it is so like the shocking. sun, the sun in Britain, you know, would have done a good bit of that. Then, Isn't it know? shocking? Like when you talk oh, no, about when you this think now, now, yeah, that it's happened in our lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Even. I know, yeah, but it's it's kind of it's different times. Like, yeah, you know, like editors in, in the eighties and in the seventies in, in Ireland, like, would have been under huge pressure uh, from the church mm. over stuff that they were running. They would have been under huge pressure from the politicians and the government over stories at the moment. Like, it was just a different time, you know. Mm. Like, a, a, a politician wouldn't dare ring an editor now and try, get them to try and stop a story because they'd just be destroyed because yeah. the editor would take the conversation and just turn them over yeah. and the public would take a very dim view. But in those days, these are the things that went on, you know. Mm. Well, I remember being slaughtered by PJ Mara over some story I wrote in the Star about Charlie Hoy or for asking them awkward questions at a press conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, PJ Mara uh, tackling me and having a really right go at me, really aggressive on the phone and being threatening to me, you know. But in, in fairness to PJ Mara, like he was, at the end of the day, was a pretty good soul. Uh, a couple of hours later, he came and he sought me out and, and apologized and brought me for a point in the doll bar. At, and then it all just passed over. But that was the type of thing that went on. I mean, there was a lot of pressure uh, put on people in those days, you know. Mm. And you have to respect, you know, people like um, the the great old great editors, as I used to call them. You have to kind of respect the likes of, of Vinnie Doyle, 
and uh, and uh, Tim Pakuyan, who always stuck to their guns and followed their own instinct, and never let anyone intimidate them. And also, I have to hand it to Tony O'Reilly. You know, Tony O'Reilly, uh, you know, was a, never interfered in his papers, to be fair to him. In all the years, as did Jerry McGuinness, he never, like Jerry McGuinness was happy once, you know, somebody got a little mention on his chairman's page. That's all he ever asked. He never interfered in the news agenda. Neither did Tony O'Reilly. Mm. Like, Tony O'Reilly, you know, didn't go around trying to pick the government as such. Um, and uh, or, or did the O'Reilly family, to be fair to them. And they employed a lot of people over the years. Mm. And and Vinnie Doyle was uh, was certainly one of the greatest editors uh, of all time in this country. Mm. And what about the um, the idea that sex was for sale in this country in the 1980s. Were you, or were they the days? Yeah, sex was for sale. Bot, yeah, yeah, we used that. to do, uh, <laughs> we used to do the, what they call a, a brothel bust in, in the Sunday world. And Sean Boyne would call us all in on a Tuesday and there could be six or eight of us and reporters and photographers and we were sent out. So, like, there was a legal magazine. There was a magazine going out around Dublin at that time. Had I think it was in Dublin. Had all the addresses, had all these addresses and phone numbers of all these massage parlours around the country, around Dublin. Now, these massage parlours were brothels. Mm. So basically, people went in for massages and then one thing led to another and you could get various services of what you wanted and I'll leave it to people's imagination. But at the end of the day, if you wanted to have full sex with a uh, with a, a prostitute, that's exactly what you had. And basically these massage, masseurs were prostitutes. And many of them, most of them were Irish. Mm. And uh, it's not called the oldest profession for nothing. So Sean Boyne would send us all out and we'd have to go into these and massage parlors and you'd have the photographer outside and take pictures and you'd go in and go on the cover and get stripped off and uh, you know they would then start massaging you and then ask you then if you wanted any extra and then you were told what the extras were on offer and it was 10 quid for this and 20 quid for that and 30 quid for the other and 40 quid if you wanted the full Monty or whatever you wanted and for half an hour or an hour or whatever and, uh, and then of course you know, we all had to make our excuses and leave. Because uh, if you did go ahead and have any kind of a sex act with this lady tonight, you were going to completely, from a legal point of view, mess up the investigation. But basically, Son of World used to do these kind of brothel busts four times a year or whatever it was, and they'd name and shame all these various brothels and publish pictures of them. And, you know, all the various reporters, you know, would, would do a piece on each place they went into and, you know, what the lady was like and what she blonde or brunette or whatever it was. And that was a kind of a regular thing that went down the paper. So, yeah, sex did play a big part in mm. selling, selling the paper. And, and that's why a lot of people in rural Ireland bought the Son of the World and why they kind of would be coming out, some people would be coming out at the shop with the Sunday World hidden inside the Sunday Press or in, hidden inside the Sunday Independent. Because they wanted to know. read about this. That was, sounds like really hard work, Jumbo. It was very difficult. Very, very, very hard work for some people, I can tell you. It also sounds like a real man's world as a journalist. Yeah, probably. There was a bit of a, a boys club as such, but, you know, in the Sunday Women World. Women features, wasn't that the way it was? Yeah, but, yeah, but you had like Cathy Kelly in the Sunday World. You had Michelle McCormick. My own sister Marie worked there for a while. Um, you know, you had uh, you had a number of women were there, but they weren't as such in, in, in the front line as, as you know, kind of the force women. You know, the worst, like, I mean, to be fair, there were, there were women who were very good news reporters on other papers, mm. you know, in the Yeah, McCafferty and... Well, yeah, now McCafferty was born, but I mean, you know, in the year, Catherine Donnelly in the Irish Independent, she's still there. 
But there was very other ones in in the Irish press. Maybe she didn't like there was loads. Like there was, there was there was many of them in the Irish press at that time. And there was and there was many of them too. In the end, though, there just wasn't as many in the Sunday World. The Sunday World kind of was a bit of a boys' club. Yeah, and it sounds and very rough to, oh, and tumbles. It was work. rough and tumble, and there was big booze and culture. There was a big womanizing culture. You know, the lads, we used to go out, we'd work hard and we'd play hard. And, you know, we used to be down in Leeson Street because we were all earning huge amounts of money. You know, buying wine and champagne and all the rest of it in the 80s, which, you know, a lot of people had no money in the 80s, but we had plenty of money because we were making a lot of money in, in the Sunday world then. Mm. And we were all out, we were all kids, all in our 20s, who so were out enjoying ourselves and we were clumming it around Dublin and we didn't have to pay in anywhere and we partied. You know, we certainly party three or four nights a week. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, definitely. Like there was no Brady's like, educated their entire and, and Brady's was was a, it, it was a, it was a hell of a place to go, and we had great fun in there. You know, mm. but it was like you know, to be honest, yeah. To answer your question, it was a boys' club, but that wasn't me. You know, that wasn't deliberate. It kind of changed. Then you know, Joanne McAgon came on board. Then I think in the nineties, around the time I was leaving, she was no, she was in there actually before she came in. You know, so there was, and she was a very, very good news reporter. Mm. You know, and I think I have to say, and I could be, I could be wrong, but I've it never wasn't heard. As if there, was, there was never, there was an, there was, it wasn't as if it was an anti-women. That's what I was going to say. I've never heard anyone. I've never heard anyone complain about their time. In the Sunday world. No. For any of those reasons. Okay, you know, there'd be a couple of you know, very rude comments made or whatever like that. But most people were able for it, women that were But the women who went in there were well able to fight their own car. Yeah. Yeah, Pauline Cronin, of course, she was there and she yeah. was a news reporter. And she did news stories and she did TV stuff and features. And I think she was a press officer in the RTE now. But she was there, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, they had like, they, they, they all just did what they had to do. And they were all tough women. Like, they were all like, well able to, they were all able to say their piece and, yeah. you know, say what they thought and they certainly did hang back like Cathy Kelly, Kelly, Kelly was always one to speak her mind mm. but they were also good fun like it wasn't what I mean it was a boy it was, it was a sense of fun like there was a great emphasis putting on fun and that re- like if you enjoyed yourself doing your job and getting the stories that we got it also reflected in the paper and the paper was very much a, a happy paper like when you read the Sunday World on Sunday like it, we didn't want to feel like you know um, so I suppose this is an expression you would have said then but you wouldn't say now like you, you can't I probably can't say, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't have put you in bad humor. Yeah, shall we say this? Yeah. In the world, would have made you laugh mm-hmm. and give you a bit of crack and a bit of a laugh, and there was a sense of fun. And what we were trying to do, and the editor was trying to, do, was to entertain people. Mm. It was seen as Sunday entertainment, and that's what it was. Mm, and it certainly worked. So, Jumbo Kearns, thank you very much. You're welcome, Nick. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.